there, there's an old uh, kind of saying, maybe story, I guess. It's, it's pretty short, but it goes something like this. Maybe you've heard some version of it before. Uh, but there's two young fish swimming along through the water uh, one morning, and they happen to, to pass by a much older fish swimming the other way. And the older fish says to the two younger ones, morning, boys, how's the water? And the two younger fish swim on a little further, and one turns to the other and says, what in the world is water? And it's the old saying of when we talk about a fish like a fish in water, this idea that fish are so immersed in it that they're not even aware of, of what they're living in. And, and the saying goes when we talk about that or, or we say that in, in some way or we use that, we say like a fish in water. What we mean often is like the things that are surrounding us that we're so involved in, like our culture, uh, like the ways that we maybe talk and act and react and the way that we operate in our life that are so part of what we do that we never even really stop to think about it. Kind of like the fish in water. They're so in the water that they can't even re- recognize what it would be like to be a different way. And part of the reason I, I start there and just mention that to you is that when we start to look at the way that we act and react and live and move and the way people uh, act and react to one another today in our culture in a whole lot of ways. We're kind of like the fish in the water. We've missed greatly a whole lot of ways uh, what it would look like to truly follow Jesus the way he's called us to. And sometimes we can't even see it because we're so inundated with all these other things around us day in and day out that it's hard to see those things. And so what we've been doing the last few weeks is talking about who we are. And when we say who we are, what we mean is who we are in Christ, who we are as the church. There's there's one church. Uh, you, You don't go to church. You are the church. We say that frequently here. The church is all those that have the Holy Spirit indwelling them that have come by grace through faith to who Jesus is. And they're putting their trust and hope in him. And that's who we are is the church. And so we mean that in a universal sense, all believers of all time. That's the church. But then we also mean when we talk about who we are as a church, us locally as a body and how we live out what is true of us in Jesus. And so that's what we've been doing the last few weeks. And what we're trying to see and do is kind of set apart against the things that maybe our culture says and what Jesus calls us to and highlight some of those areas that maybe we're missing what that looks like. And so the first week we talked about being gospel centered and what we mean and the way we define that is the gospel is the good news of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ, that we are separated from God because of our sin. Although we are made in his image, we are made for his pleasure to know and to love him above all else. We've rebelled against him and we've sinned. And there's no way that we can earn our way back into God's good graces. But it takes God doing what we could never do for us in Jesus. It's the good news of the gospel. God loves us so much that he comes and does what we couldn't do on our own to restore us in that relationship. And so when we say we want to be gospel centered, we want to find our identity and our being and our lives centered on the person and work of Jesus Christ. And the second week we talked about being disciples and that just flows out of this idea of being gospel centered in the way that we've been defining disciples is to be a disciple of Jesus is to be growing in obedience to Jesus in every area of your life. By the power and direction of the Holy Spirit working in and through us. We're now united with Christ and our identity in him and want to live that out to the fullest. And that's what it means to be a disciple, to seek to be growing in those areas, growing up into the fullness of what God created us to be in Jesus. And then last week we talked about being a family. That we've rebelled against God, that all people are God's children. 
every single person on the planet is made in God's image and in a very real sense are God's children. But we've renounced him as our father and our sin and our rebellion. And so what God does is he comes to us in Jesus. Again, the heart of the gospel does what we can't do for us. And he adopts us back into his family. And he calls us as the church, a family of faith that we're brothers and sisters in Christ. And so we talked about all these different identities. And today we're going to talk about this idea of being servants. Right. So if gospel centered and disciple and family, and now we're talking about being servants and what it means to serve one another and to serve others. And what I want us to think about as we think on this this morning is it's not merely just a doing thing. We're not talking about, okay, I want you to get up and go out today and do practical things for other people, although it certainly includes that. I'm not excluding that, but I want us to think of it deeper than that. Because the way Jesus is going to talk this morning is he talks about our identity as servants and what that means and what he sets it up against uh, goes a lot against the way our world works and the way we think oftentimes. And it's much more than just doing things for other people, but it's actually the way in which we respond to other people, the way we love them, the way our heart attitude is towards God and towards the people he's put in front of us and what that looks like. And the hard part is some of the things that Jesus says here that we're going to look at today and what Paul says in Philippians 2, because we're going to look at part of Philippians 2 as well. And both of those passages are so set against the way our culture and the way our world thinks. And it's so set against it that sometimes it's hard for us to even see it. Because that's the water that we're swimming in, what our culture says on these issues. And so I want us to think about this idea of servant. And what it means to get our identity from who Jesus is and our heart uh, tuned with who he is and what he's done for us. And so the first thing I want us to consider is the problems that lead us to miss what Jesus is calling us to. Because there's some things in our world and our culture that are constantly we're inundated with that make it hard for us to really do and hold fast to what Jesus is calling us to. The second thing, how do we change it? How does it start to take root and change in our life? And we'll see that with what Jesus says. And then lastly, how do we live this out more fully? So let's start with this idea of maybe some of the problems on why we miss it. We're going to look at Matthew chapter 20 together. I read that for you just a second ago, but let me set the scene if you're not real familiar with Matthew's gospel and where we are. Matthew chapter 20, uh, where we are in this is towards the end of Jesus's life right before the crucifixion. We're actually right up to the end. Uh, if you look just at the headings in the Bible, as you look there, chapter 21 is the triumphal entry. That happens the last week of Jesus's life. Chronologically, this is right before it, somewhere in the week or two before that, most likely. And so what you've got here is that I've never done that. I always think I'm going to fall off and I almost did it there. So Joanna always tells me you move too much. You're going to fall off of that thing. And I've never done it. So I was close. I'm going to take a step back. There we go. Uh, so Jesus, my point here, and just kind of setting us where we are in this, is they've been following Jesus for over three years, right? So this is not something, an issue that comes up in this conversation that happens early on and they're still trying to figure out who Jesus is. They've been with Jesus for a long time, right? Because this is the 12, his 12 disciples that he pulls aside and he spends time with, spends a lot of time with, right? 
And so this is three years in and some of his very closest disciples and they come with their mother. And so it says the mother and the sons of Zebedee came to him with her sons. Her sons are James and John. Right. And so not only does Jesus have the 12, but then he has Peter, James and John that he often pulls off to the side. It goes even kind of deeper with them. And so this is like inner circle guys that have spent a lot of time with Jesus and they come to him with this request. And the request is the mother asks, uh, can these two sons of mine sit at your right hand, your right and your left hand in your kingdom? And Jesus says, you don't really know what you're asking here. You don't understand what you're saying. And part of this goes back to this misunderstanding that you see all the way through the Gospels with just about everybody, including Jesus's disciples. Jesus is constantly talking about why he's come and he comes back to, especially later in this last year of his ministry, he's saying it a lot that he's going to die that he's going to lay down his life, that he's going to be delivered up. He's going to be crucified. He says all these things over and over and over again, and they have no category for it. They don't know how to even understand what he's saying. In fact, when they come and they ask this, if you look closely, the context, verses 17, 18 and 19, right before it, Jesus has just told them again that he's going to die. We're going to go up to Jerusalem and they're going to deliver me over and I'm going to be flogged and mocked and crucified. He's just told them this. And their response is like, well, great. Can we be at your right hand and your left hand? They think that the Messiah is coming. He's going to overthrow the government. He's going to rule and reign right there. He's going to set up everything great and perfect. And so their question is kind of rooted in this idea that he's going to be like the president or he's going to be the ruler and he's about to take control and take power. And we're going to get to be there ruling and reigning with him. And I want to make sure I have the best seat. It's almost like uh, they're thinking Jesus is about to be elected president and they want to make sure they have the best cabinet positions. Right. Or or they're like, I want to be the vice president, so I should probably tell him now. And that's kind of what's going on here. Right. And so that's what they're saying to Jesus. They're thinking it's going to be a conquering leader that's coming. And so there's this context here that they're missing part of what's happening. And so Jesus says to him, you don't really get this. You're missing what's going on. He says, can you drink the cup that I'm going to drink? And that's loaded with meaning. That could be its whole other sermon. We're going to kind of leave that there. But really, it has to do with, can you take on what I'm about to take on? And Jesus is pointing to the cross and his crucifixion and his suffering. He even says to them, you will drink of my cup, knowing that James will be martyred later on. John will be exiled. They are going to step into the suffering for Jesus's name later in their life. And I think that's what he's saying there. But going back to just their perception of what it looks like, they're thinking that change comes through taking power and making it happen. And I want to make sure I get my place uh, in the kingdom. I want to make sure that I've got my seat in the cabinet because I want to make things happen. And this is the way you do it. And so they're all kind of jockeying for position here. And I'd say it's the same way in the way uh, the way we think our world works. If I get power and I can be over people and I can tell them what to do, then that's what will make this happen. And that's the way our world works in so many ways. And you see why people are so divided. You see it in our political system. You see people so ready to go to war to try to get the position so they can make things happen the way they should think it will happen. But the problem is, and I think you see this all the way through Jesus's ministry, is that doesn't change hearts. That's not the way it works. 
It doesn't come from the top down like that, that you're going to make it happen by telling people this is what it looks like. But yet we struggle with that. And it's the heart of our sinfulness that leads us to struggle with that. Our, our daily pride, our desire to control situations and things is because we believe we're the sinner. Right. That's what sin is. Ignoring God and the world he created and putting ourselves in a place that we shouldn't be. And so we think I can make this happen by doing it myself if I just get that position and I can tell people what to do. And then that's how it will work. And I'm going to tell you that is so in everything in our world that what Jesus is going to say in response to this is so hard for people to even grasp because of how different it is from the way the world operates. Jesus says it's going to say the kingdom works upside down from this. See, what happens today is we think it's through power and I'm going to make it happen. I'm going to do it. And if people disagree with me, we then can attack them. We can go after them. Right. They're wrong and I'm right. I've got the truth. They don't. So it's OK for any means to make happen what I'm trying to get to happen. And you see that a perfect example like this week didn't plan that this would be this week, but it just happens this way. This week is uh, election time. Right. And so ads everywhere attacking and ugly and all the stuff that's going on. And it's all kind of predicated on this idea. If we can just get power, we can make it happen. And there's a problem. Jesus is always kind of turning that back in a whole lot of ways. Uh, in Luke chapter nine, there's there's a there's a story that goes along right with this. And you don't have to turn there. You can if you want. But it's in Luke chapter nine and verse fifty one. And it's the same guys. It's James and John. And it's either right before or right after this. It's right around this same time. And they're traveling on their way to Jerusalem. And it says this. And so when the days drew near for him to be taken up, Jesus to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set towards Jerusalem. Now, we don't know exactly what that means. It's kind of vague. But the idea is that Jesus's face is set towards he knows he's about to be crucified. He's kind of singular in his purpose at this moment that it's about to happen and it's very close. And so whatever was going on there, the people were not receiving what Jesus was saying or the ways that they were coming. Right. And so they did not receive him because his face was set towards Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, it's the sons of Zebedee, same two, they saw it. They said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? Right. Their answer is like they're rejecting you. They don't get it. Should we wipe them all out? Sounds a lot like our world today, right? Like. We're not going to call fire down, but we will mock and belittle and try to make fun of people and destroy them and ruin their reputation and everything else to try to get that position. Same idea. They're going, can we call fire down for this to happen? But verse 55, he says, but he turned and rebuked them. He says, no, it's not how my kingdom works. And it says they moved on to the next village. Right. And so Jesus stops them. But you see this kind of in James and John. They're they're excited and they're ready to go. And anyone that gets in the way, we're going to knock them out of the way. Let's keep going. And so I want you to think this, that default, sadly, is how we respond a lot of times. If we think we're really right and, and maybe we are and maybe you do have the truth in a situation and you see it clearly. 
But we can easily turn it into this man. I'm going to make it happen by doing X and Y and taking power and go get it. And that's often our default in the ways that we respond. Like if if people talk loud, the answer is talk louder. Right. If they just disagree really ugly, well, then you are now justified to be even uglier. And that's so what we're in today all around us. That's kind of the water we're swimming in. And we see it all around us in all these ways. Try to destroy those that would disagree and you lead from power. But I want you to think about this picture. It's nothing new. It's not a heart condition that's new. You see James and John going, I'm going to jockey for position to sit at his right hand and his left hand. I want to be right there. They're thinking that way. You hear them saying, call down fire. Let's get rid of the people who disagree. Obviously, this is part of a heart condition that's in all of us. It's nothing new. This was happening 2000 years ago. And so you see it in all these different ways. But is that what we're called to be as disciples of Jesus? Does Jesus go, that's right. Let's call down fire and get rid of all these people. No, he says, you guys don't get it. You don't understand. And if you look closely, it's not just James and John. If you look at verse 24 there in Matthew 20, it says, and when the 10 heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. And I think by the context and what you see happening and some things they say, other parts of the gospel, they weren't indignant because it's like you guys have the kingdom all wrong. It's not like this. They're indignant because they didn't ask first. They're like, ah, that was a good idea. I should have tried to be at the right hand, right? Like they're all upset at the brothers. Like they, they beat me to the punch. I wanted that position. And so what you see is the misunderstanding all around in all these different ways. And so here's the thing I want us to consider. What does Jesus say? What's the answer to that? What does Jesus point us to? And how does that start to change our heart to actually follow him in all the ways he's calling us? Right. So look at what he says in verse 25. But Jesus called them to him. And he said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. Right. And so you hear what he's saying in verse 25. He says, yeah, that is the way the world works. They think it's power and you lord it over them and you exercise it over them. And that's what you do. And that's the way the world works. Right. And so he acknowledges that that is the water we're swimming in. That is part of what's happening in the world. I see that. Right. Jesus is not naive. He knows how the world works. But then he says, verse 26, it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. And I think it's uh, I read this over and over and thinking about this scene and him pulling the disciples together. Three years he's been with them. It's kind of like, guys, do you not? Right. Really? It's like they're missing it. They're, they're not seeing it. He kind of pulls them aside. I think of James and John fighting over we're going to sit at his right and his left hand. And I read that over and over this week. And I thought, here's Jesus, God incarnate, perfect disciple maker in every way, doing all the right things, saying all the right things. And they're fighting over who's going to sit at his right hand. It really greatly encouraged me in this sense that my boys fight over who's going to sit in the front seat like every day. Things like that. And I think, man, Jesus was doing it perfectly in every way. And they're still doing that. Right. 
It's the sinfulness of all our hearts. And Jesus is, is speaking into that. And he's speaking the truth in the midst of it. And he's continuing to be uh, careful and teaching and walking with them. And he says, guys, it doesn't work like this. Not so with my disciples. It's not going to be like this. You're going to serve other people. You're going to do it in a different way than the way the world sees it. And it's going to be so countercultural, it's going to be hard. And he's like, he even acknowledges, I know this is the way the world works. This is the way they do it. But not so with you. But I want you to see what he says here. And, and I want you to think deeply about why this is such a struggle for us. It's hard for us because our sinfulness, the sinfulness of our heart wants to make us the sinner. We want to believe that we're in control and we can do it. And if I just get the right position or just right, that's that thing that we're the center of all. That it relies on me to make this happen instead of following what Jesus tells us to do and stepping out in faith and trusting him and believing that what he tells us actually works and even when it doesn't seem to work, that he's worth our allegiance and we want to be obedient to him in all things. But we struggle in that because we go back to kind of our old way of living, even as believers. Right. And so think what happens as you become a Christian. The Bible says you're dead in your trespasses and sins and you believe you're the center of the world. But God invades your life and shows you that you cannot do this on your own. The grace of God visits you in your life. And you admit that you're a sinner and I can't do this and I desperately need God to do what I can never do for me. It's the very heart of everything we believe, the gospel, the good news of Jesus. And that begins to change us. And as it does, the Holy Spirit enters our life and it makes us a new creation. We go from death to life. We're now a new creation. We're united with the Son through the Spirit and God's making us into his image. But every single one of us still lives in this body. We still have our old habits. We still have our old way of thinking. We're bombarded with messages all around us that tell us that what Jesus says doesn't work and it's not true. And so we're struggle with I want to I want to honor God, but all these other things say something different. And so we're always kind of in that war of what the world says and what our flesh says and what our sinfulness says and what the spirit is saying to us and making real to us in Jesus. And that's ongoing, always. And until we die, until Jesus brings us completely to his image and he glorifies us in every way, that'll be the reality of our lives from this day until we take our last breath. And we're in that battle and it's a real struggle and it's really happening. And so we live in this culture that's saturated, we're saturated in, that tells us that it's okay to belittle, that you grab power, you do it in these ways. And so we start to believe that. And what Jesus is saying is it doesn't work like that. That's not what I'm calling you to. He's turning it upside down. He says, not so with you. And for this to make any sense at all, we have to continue to cling to Jesus over everything else. Right? That's why Jesus says, you abide in me and my word in you and you will bear much fruit. And apart from me, you can do nothing. Because what Jesus is calling us to here, to serve others, to love them, to put others first, to operate in that way. Is the exact opposite of what our flesh wants to do and what the world tells us. You cannot do this on your own. It's not possible. 
not in the fullness of the way Jesus is talking about. We might do it every once in a while a little bit, or we might begrudgingly serve someone else. But to truly have a heart of what God is calling us to do, it takes his grace working in and through us to turn that upside down, to change us. And so I want you to think about what happens when you come to faith. Romans 6, Paul says, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we are no longer enslaved to sin for the one who has died has been set free from sin. Right? In Christ, he, he's dealt with your sin and you're no longer a slave to that. You don't have to live that way. You're a new creation. Like verse 11 of Romans 6, he says, so you also must consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. You're now a new creation. And with that, as you now have God's spirit in you, uniting you to him, and you don't have to live that way any longer. You're a new creation. You have a new identity. And it's all the things we've been talking about. You're now a beloved child of God as Jesus has adopted you back into his family. And he gives you this supernatural power and strength in and of himself. Him in you, working in you, that you can begin to serve and love other people. But I want you to understand how the gospel comes to play in that. So if you would turn over to uh, Philippians chapter 2 real quick. If you've got the solid Bible, it's 570. If you've got the blue and white one, it's 677. And Paul's going to talk about your identity in Christ. And I want you to make this connection with what Jesus says here in Matthew chapter 20, right? So he tells him, you're going to serve. It's not going to be so among you. You're going to serve. And then listen to what he says in verse 28. Even as the son of man came not to serve, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. He says, you're my disciples and this is what it's going to look like. And you're being united to me and what I'm doing. And he said, this is who I am. I came to lay down my life for others. Do you see that? The heart of the gospel. Jesus is coming and taking our sin upon himself and doing what we can never do for us. And doing so, he shows us perfectly what a servant looks like. And that's what Paul says in Philippians chapter 2. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind. Having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourself. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Do you hear what he says? Jesus has come and he is the perfect servant and he's laid down his life for you. And he left his throne and he comes and he does all of this. And he says, now you are united with Christ. And so if you have any participation in the spirit, do you hear what he's saying? If you're walking by the spirit and you're participating in who you are in Jesus, this is what it's going to look like. You're going to count others more significant than yourself. Looking to their interests, not your own. And look at what he says in verse six. Who, though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. 
so that the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God, the father. You hear what he's saying? Do you see what Jesus is saying in Matthew 20 when he says, I came not to be served, but to serve and to give my life a ransom for many. Jesus is saying this is what God is like. Jesus is the exact representation of who God is. And this is what God is like. He comes to do what you can't do for you. He willingly lays down his life. He willingly lays down everything that he deserves as the son of God who's reigning above all. Right. That's what verse six means in Ephesians. Or I'm sorry, Philippians two. He did not account equality with God to be grasped, but he emptied himself. He gave up everything that he deserves and he serves us by coming and living the life we haven't lived and dying the death we deserve. It is the perfect example and picture of what a servant looks like. But here's the thing that I want you to understand when we talk about serving other people. In the face of a world that says you grab the power and you belittle and you mock and you do it this way. And Jesus says something totally different. The only way that you get there is by recognizing that you are a grace bought person. Everything that you have and everything that you are and everything that you will ever do of any significance or meaning in your life is by the grace of God in your life. And and so what that means is it levels all of us. When you go, man, those people are wrong. And so it's okay for me to attack them and belittle them. Those people are exactly like me, but the grace of God. It's all God's grace. And it brings us back to an understanding that who Jesus is and what he's done for us. Everything that I am. I am a mess if it's not for Jesus. It's all I have. And so when I start to twist it to be like, I want to be in power, I'm forgetting what Jesus has done for me. They don't go together. Looking down and belittling and being ugly and trying to use people is the exact opposite of everything that God's done for us. And if we're united with Christ, if we have any participation in the spirit, as Paul says in Philippians 2, He says, have this mind, count others more significant than yourself. Because that's what Jesus did for you. And that's who you are in Christ. That's your identity in Jesus. You are a servant because of the way God has served you. Doesn't go together to work any other way. And the more that we recognize what Jesus has done for us, right? He says, any participation in the spirit. What does the spirit do? The Holy Spirit comes and convicts you of sin and then immediately points you to Jesus and what he's done for you. And so what that does is it magnifies the understanding of grace in your life. And the more that you understand the grace that God has given you, the more gracious you are to other people. That's the only way that you can count others more significant as yourself, because in your sinfulness, you'll go, no, 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 it's all about me and I should come first. But when the spirit is working in you and it's showing you the grace of God, that it's the natural step to go. Yes, I want to count others more significant than me because everything I have has been a gift. Everything that I've ever achieved or gotten or the love that I feel from God and the spirit that is now at work in me is all because of what Jesus has done. And so this image of us being servants all comes back to the gospel. That's how we started with. We have to be gospel centered and what Jesus has done for us. And there's this incredible thing, and and Paul hints at it here in Philippians 2. 
He says, complete my joy of being of the same mind. Paul gets this and he's given his life away for everyone around him. Right. People would spit on him and beat him and stone him. And he'd brush himself off and be like, Jesus loves you. (laughs) Keep going. That was his entire life for me to live as Christ, to die as gain. And he's like, I have this joy in counting others as more significant than myself. Complete that joy. I want you to know that as well. There's a joy that comes from abiding in Jesus and who you are in him. And that means counting other people is more significant and loving them even when they're unlovely. Even when you disagree, even when you think they're completely wrong, even when you think they're, they're going in the wrong way, you speak the truth in love, but you continue to seek to serve. It's not just physical serving, but it's a heart condition towards those around you. And it's who we are in Christ. And there's a greater joy in living that way. And our world, and I'd say our country, desperately needs people that count others more significant than themselves. That are understanding the grace of God, that we would see that. And so I just encourage you as we end a couple of ways as we think about how to serve others, how to do that more fully, how to live fully into the identity that God has given us in Jesus. Part of that is, is simply opening your homes, being involved with other believers, going on mission together, inviting people in, extending the grace that you have received. When we think about serving the heart condition that's there, loving those around you. But practically ways that that plays out right here. We're involved with uh, Meals by Grace here in Dawson County. If you don't know what that is, uh, talk to Dan. He'd love to talk to you about it. Uh, He's been going and and serving there. And part of it, it takes meals to people here in Dawson County. It's a great way for you to go with other people. You show up, you pack meals, and you take them to families that need them. And it's a great way to put the hands and feet of Jesus to the people around us and love people that are there. There's boxes out in the foyer when you go out to fill a box up for Operation Christmas Child. Uh, Samaritan's Purse does that. It's to make a box, a shoebox full of toys for kids around the world that won't have anything else at Christmas. And it's a way to share the love of Jesus with those in a tangible way. It comes with a presentation of the gospel that goes with it. It's a great opportunity for you and your family to take those and pack those together and talk about what it means to serve to count others more significant than yourselves. Uh, And and I'll end right here with this as we think about it, as we'll come back to it in a minute with our announcements. But we're about to start what we call Advent Conspiracy this time of year. And what that is, is we want to turn Christmas back to doing just what we're talking about, making much of Jesus in all things. And so the idea of Advent Conspiracy came from from some churches several years ago. And the idea is that we were asking you to consider buying one or two less gifts this year and give that money away to those that really need it. And so we asked you, what we want you to do is not just give a Christmas offering. We want you to really think about how you spend your money at Christmas, what it looks like and why you're doing it and who you're seeking to serve. And what does that do? And is there a possibility that you could cut back on some of those things so that we can collectively give money together to reach out to those in need? And so this year, what we're going to do is that money is going to go towards filling as many boxes as we can for Operation Christmas Child. And then part of that is going to go to Meals by Grace. And so we do that collectively together because it's a way that we can serve our community, which is exactly who we are in Jesus and showing what that's like at Christmas. 
And so these are just practical, simple ways that we can start to live out of our identity as a servant. And the wonderful thing is there's a great joy that comes with that because you are participating with the spirit and who Jesus is. You're aligning your very being with who you were created to be in Christ, that we are called to be servants. And it's a great joy for us to get to do that. So let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for the glorious good news of your gospel that you've done what we could never do for us. We thank you for the grace that you extend to us, that even when we are uh, very hard to love, when we're rebelling, when we're running away from you, you still pursue us and you still love us and you still come after us. And so we thank you for that wonderful truth. I pray that that truth would continue to change our hearts, that you continue to soften us, to truly count others more uh, important than ourselves, to truly love them in the way that you loved us, that we would show people what it looks like. Uh, We pray for the courage to stand up in a culture that oftentimes does the exact opposite. We would be lights in the middle of that, truly loving people in all things, seeking to serve them for your glory. We thank you and we pray all of it in Jesus' name. Amen.